Hello everybody, I'm Jacopo Dettoni and this is the FDI podcast. The month of May is traditionally the time for the members of the Asian Development Bank and the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development to reconvene and catch up over the challenges lying ahead for the two development banks. I was in Manila at the beginning of the month to cover the ADB's annual meeting, whereas my colleague Adrian Klasa, who is here with me today, was in Jordan a week later to attend the EBRD's annual meeting. So Adrian, what have been your main takeaways from, uh, from the event? Thanks, Jacopo. Um, I guess there were a couple main themes that emerged. Um, first of all, from a top-line economic perspective, um, the EBRD's chief economist seemed to be quite optimistic for the growth outlook for all the countries that they cover. However, there were some concerns about rising corporate debt levels and also um, ceilings placed on growth by the lack of structural reforms that were going to be seen in some countries. In terms of the themes that were really being, and the issues that were really being discussed at the meeting, though, um, one of the central ones is the fact that the EBRD is looking to grow. It's looking to expand its uh, the countries it covers in the regions that it's already in, and to sort of maybe even look outward from there, because it has a de- additional capital to deploy. Uh, the second one was the EBRD sort of aligning itself with sort of China's uh, belt and road policy drive, uh, which wants to see sort of infrastructure linking Europe and Asia sort of built all across the belt um, that used to be the Silk Road back in the days of Marco Polo and such. And I guess the third um, thing that came out uh, was sort of really looking at the work that the EBRD was ar- was starting to do in some of the new countries that it had expanded into, notably Jordan, mm-hmm. uh, which is a recent addition. Well, actually, it's interesting that uh, you, you mentioned the, the future of the, the EBRD, the expansion of the EBRD. This was also a topic for the, for the ADB Manila because the ADB is sort of in a different uh, situation. They are sort of struggling to remain relevant because the region has experienced so much growth over the past decades. Um, another main topics were definitely like automation, innovation. Uh, so the, the Asia-Pacific region, the region of operation, typical region of operation of the ADB, obviously is a big manufacturing hub for the whole world and now they are facing this huge opportunity but also challenge of uh, automation uh, AI and so many countries that have bet much of their development over manufacturing and uh, other services like call center now they are they are wondering wh- what's next what should we do with uh, also from a policy making perspective uh, to address this to, to make the most of these opportunities but also address these challenges on a, from a from a work uh, from a work perspective but tell us something more about the the expansion of the the EBRD this is definitely a very interesting uh, a topic the EBRD has grown uh, much farther beyond uh, the typical era of operation of Eastern Europe for which it was originally established. So what's next for the EBRD? Right. So, I mean, the EBRD was initially set up, as many listeners will know, um, to help post-Soviet states move towards democracy and market economies. Um, now that a lot of that's been accomplished, um, the EBRD it has looked to expand across the Mediterranean basin. So they've looked at what they call the SEMED, the Southern and Eastern Mediterranean uh, group of countries that they sort of drawn a circle around the Mediterranean to uh, encircle. So that includes places like Turkey, that includes places like Jordan. Um, and now they're sort of looking to potentially invest in even more countries across um, that region. 
that reflects the fact that, you know, the EBRD has a mission that is looking to su uh, support the sustainable development goals. That also has to do with the fact that, as I mentioned previously, the EBRD actually has spare cash lying around. They say that they have an additional $3 billion or 3 billion euros, sorry, um, worth of capital that they could look to invest. Um, so obviously they're going to look in, uh, first in their countries of operation where they already are, but then they're going to start looking to expand outwards. Um, why don't we listen to, I've got a clip um, with Jonathan Charles, who is the head of communications for EBRD, sort of talking about their expansion plan and see what he has to say about it. As MDBs, most lateral development banks, we all need to step up to tackle this. Uh, and we all need to do more, and that includes the EBRD. So we will be reminding governors that uh, we could do, because we have plenty of capital, we're not short of capital uh, to tackle these issues. You know, we haven't, so we just had the World Bank having more capital, or recapitalization, that seems to be going through, but we, we have capital. Uh, and we could do another 3 billion euros a year of lending on top of the, on average, 9.4 billion that we've done over the past few years. So we could take our lending to 12, 12 and a half billion or something like that. So the question is what to do with that. Uh, you know, it's how to harness that really uh, to help to deliver these, against these three challenges. So we want a discussion tomorrow with our shareholders. We're not going to ask them for a decision. It's really just get a sense of their uh, where they stand uh, on this. So no formal decision making, but actually with the sense of where they stand, we will then proceed with whatever we need to do. And we are asking them to consider uh, and to discuss tomorrow a phased approach. So the key message here is that Liberty uh, has got capital to deploy, and they are looking at ways to the new ways to deploy it, right? Yeah, the interesting thing actually is, so I interviewed Jonathan um, on the day before um, the big sort of shareholders forward right. forum of the EBRD. Um, the day after, there was a press conference with the president of the EBRD where sort of this consultation process that he was talking about with existing members um, took place in terms of, you know, what do we want to look at doing? Um, so Jonathan um, talked about sort of, you know, a three-stage approach, and once uh, President Chakrabarti was sort of making its statement, his statements, it came across that perhaps some of the existing members had hesitations um, about sort of the EBRD looking to expand even further. And it should be noted that you know some of the markets that they're talking about expanding into in phase two include places like Syria, Iraq, Algeria. Interesting markets, very, very challenging. Obviously, you know, both Libya and Syria right. um, are not at peace at the moment. So I think that there was um, perhaps some hesitation about, you know, how quickly they should no. push ahead with no. this. But in a way, this would anyway also fit uh, any European, uh, European Union agenda to start increase help for these countries locally instead of uh, kind of trying to weather the storm of, for example, the immigration crisis, the migrant crisis in Europe when it's already happening, trying to increase, uh, um, yeah, again, support uh, locally, which is uh, an old mantra, for example, of the, the, the British government, but it's always kind of uh, struggle to gain uh, any real traction also because obviously uh, local dynamics are more difficult to be dealt with uh, uh, from 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 a European institution perspective, bank perspective. Definitely. I mean, I think that the subtext to a lot of this expansion 
is the migration issue. Um, obviously, officials were somewhat hesitant to sort of talk about that as being the primary motivator. Um, but in terms of a lot of the countries they're looking at, and perhaps, you know, in phase three, even looking to start investing more in sub-Saharan Africa, it does kind of follow the patterns of migrant flows that we're seeing into Europe that are creating so many policy problems there. Right. Well, actually, the ADB was, again, as I mentioned, there was a, a completely different sort of sentiment because uh, the Asia-Pacific region has... A, uh, experienced tremendous achievements in terms of reducing, uh, for example, extreme poverty. Uh, just I pulled just the statistics. Extreme poverty dec- decreased from uh, 53% of total population in the Asia-Pacific region from uh, in uh, 1990 to 9%. 9% in 2013 and obviously as uh, as a development bank uh, with a huge main focus on uh, reducing extreme poverty in the region the adb is now sort of left um in the, not in the dark there but left to to wonder what what's next now so definitely one of their answer answer is is to go uh farther beyond the, the typical asia pacific region so now they are definitely increasing operation in uh, south asia countries like uh, bangladesh pakistan also india uh, definitely increasing also their operations in uh, Central and uh, Central Asia and the Caucasus, like again countries like Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, where also the EBRD is uh, is doing uh, actually a lot of a lot of work. Also Azerbaijan or Georgia, um, but also they want to to take like a, a lead in terms of like in, in terms of policy policy advice and in terms of. Uh, uh, helping local governments to incorporate innovation, new technologies in their policy making. So, uh, one of the examples that uh, President Nakao made uh, uh, in an interview we had was how they help Bangladesh to improve their uh, the, the technology or their water distribution system to reduce leakages, to improve uh, uh, metering, to improve uh, re- revenue collections from uh, from uh, from. Uh, um, tax, tax uh, from water usage uh, uh, bills and so on and so forth. So they are trying in a way to reinvent themselves and uh, they are framing everything in what they call uh, the 2030 strategy, which is a document that is already see, is still under assessment as yet to be fully approved by all the members. But that obviously the, the annual meeting in Manila was definitely a big uh, uh, opportunity for them to discuss this uh, internally, to discuss the first draft internally. And then obviously, as you mentioned, the, the, the Belt Road Initiative, they are also being active both in uh, East Asia, in China, but also increasing that in South Asia and uh, Central Asia. They definitely uh, embrace the narrative of the Belt Road Initiative. They did, uh, uh, in the last couple of years, they did a lot of co-financing with the uh, AIIB, the Asian uh, uh, Infrastructure Investment uh, Bank. Um, and this is definitely will become an increasing, uh, rising and a more, more important uh, uh, area of uh, importance for, for the bank as as it has become also for the, the EBRD, right? Yes, definitely. I mean, EBRD very much sees itself as being aligned with the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, I mean, the deputy governor of the People's Bank of China, the central bank, um, was actually at the EBRD to talk about the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of the EBRD's countries already overlap um, with the countries that are seen as key to Belt and Road sort of running through Central Asia, running through the Caucasus. Um, So that very much aligns. 
Um, and there's also the fact that it, you know, it does align with the EBRD's core principles, you know, looking at sort of developing these interlinkages. That being said, you know, they still see a lot of challenges. I'm sure that the ADV does as well in terms of, you know, there have been questions about the quality of some of the infrastructure and investments yep. that have been made across uh, sort of Belt and Road initiatives. There have been questions about debt sustainability. And this has been actually an issue that really the IMF and Christine Lagarde have been starting to sort of thump about quite loudly across the emerging world. We are seeing sort of, you know, an uptick in debt, um, you know, in the statements that uh Chen Yulu, um, sort of the deputy governor of the Bank of China, made at the EBRD, he actually acknowledged this and sort of said that, you know, China in pushing forward, um, you know, more Belt and Road investments would be keeping a close eye on sort of how this impacts debt sustainability across the countries they're working in. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's an interesting push um, and one that I'm sure that we'll be seeing a lot more of going forward. Yeah, a typical example of uh, what you're mentioning about like that sustainability is probably Sri Lanka, uh, which is a country that uh, is always well featured also at the annual event of the ADB um, that took on a lot of depth to develop the Belt Road uh, sort of projects in uh, in, uh, in Sri Lanka, a specific big port on the southern coast uh, on the southern coast of the island, the Ambantota port, and another few projects also in Colombo. And uh, these projects are really, are really struggling to live up to original expectations. The Ambantota port is uh, is a postcard for sort of a failed uh, Belt and Road project because the port is always sort of empty. It doesn't 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 get any any cargo traffic. Um, and the airport that was developed next to it is also an international airport, basically in the middle of of nowhere there is a, there, there are very few international flights uh, coming in and out at the moment no traffic at all so again um, it's interesting because in the in the past couple of years at ADB annual meeting there was a lot of talking about Belt Road initiative this year I felt that uh, it was for them a moment to sort of clean house try to figure out where we are today after this big big initial push uh, try to put things in order and try also from our development development finance perspective, try to figure out what's the best way forward. So in a way, not that they pulled the brakes, but they for this year it was kind of a lower profile than in previous years. Also because I there is a perception that the the competition between the ADB and the AIIB is sort of intensifying. Uh, people at the at the meeting told me that. It's it's easier today for a private uh, for the private sector to get financing from the AIB, whereas it's more difficult to get financing from an ADB. Actually, the ADB has always been focused on more kind of sovereign uh, finance. Uh, now they are trying to increase uh, private uh, um, financing to the private sector because also because I pre- I feel they 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 see the rise of the AIIB, but also the EBRD, so development banks that are exclusively focused on uh, on private sector financing. And this is kind of a sort of competition, uh, a source of competition for them. I think uh, that's a really interesting point because, yeah, I think that the, the complementarity um, between the EBRD's private sector f- uh, focus and private sector experience was really something that they were seeking to emphasize for Belt and Road projects right. at this year's meeting. I think another really notable thing, though, that came out for me from sort of the discussions about 
uh, Belton Road was how strongly the representatives of both the Bank of China, um, but also of sort of, you know, other Chinese entities there wanted to push this idea of of China as a leader of globalization and China acting against protectionism, China as sort of, you know, the opening up versus, they didn't say the U.S., but this was obviously the implication, versus the U.S.'s sort of pulling away from the rest of the world. So as well as being obviously, you know, a, a an initiative that's focused on sort of developing business, developing investment, there was a very clear political line that was being drawn in the sand as well. And I guess uh, this is, I mean, you can read it from different perspectives, uh, but it's definitely a clever and uh, probably opportunistic uh, policy in a way to to come up as a champion of free trade and globalization. Right now, the the U.S. is sort of uh, kind of you know more turning uh, uh, towards protectionism or anyway, it's more 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 attentive uh, free trade uh, policies with obviously the President Donald Trump. Uh, so uh, this is perceived uh, obviously in Asia, obviously in Europe and the Middle East, but also, for example, Latin America was recently Latin America and Panama, and uh, there is happening exactly the same fight. China is pushing to close deals to emphasizing this kind of global trade um, characteristic of the new course of uh, the Xi Jinping presidency. Uh, but the big question mark there is, I guess, is the lingering question mark is, uh, will there be ever a political price for these countries to pay sooner or later for embracing uh, the Belt Road uh, initiative? Sure. And also, what does it mean for us all globally when we have essentially a communist country leading globalization? I mean, this is the major shift that we're we're going to see across all facets of politics and economics in the next little while. Right. But let me spend a couple of uh, more words on on something that was touched specifically, another major topic that was touched uh, specifically there in Manila at the ADB meeting that was uh, innovation and automation. Again, as mentioned, uh, many of these countries in Southeast Asia have become uh, the manufacturing hubs for for the whole world. Um, but now there is this uh, major technological uh, disruption that is putting a thousand, if not millions of jobs at risk. Uh, there are obviously different views on what will be the impact of automation, robotics, AI on the job market. The ADB came out with a very interesting and insightful research on this, and they tend to be very optimistic on uh, what this all means for uh, the job market in a way that they recognize that there will be people displaced, jobs displaced by technology and automation. But at the same time, their conclusion is that there will also be new sectors uh, rising from uh, like so uh, new sectors sort of related to, to technology and innovation. And also, kind of the the, the, the growing aggregate demand, the growing uh, uh, wealth of the overall region will, in a way, have an effect to offset the the impact of uh, of automation on the job market. Uh, this this was again they, they themselves were very vocal in defining this their approach as uh, optimistic. Um, I felt that the private sector. Uh, is much less optimistic or in a way is more realistic. I th- I think that those who are really implementing it, like automation on the ground uh, and they have a real grasp of the figures and the numbers, they tend to be like more like, no, there will be 
many many jobs to be to be displaced and it's gonna be tough to replace them um and also from a policy policy perspective i felt that also local governments or some local governments in the region they they are also they have to be more realistic uh in terms of what this all means also from a policy making perspective and here i spoke to mr bambambe brojonegoro who is the minister of national development planning of indonesia and write about this and this is what he told me more on the issue of manufacturing in the manufacturing of course with the uh, digitalization industrial revolution 4.0 automatization is everywhere automation is everywhere and certainly there will be i think quite significant amount of labor replaced by the uh, by the machine or at the more extreme level the robot but uh, when we are talking about services sector which is also uh, one important part of our economy the story is a bit different the story is of course the you know the emergence of the digital economy through the advanced technology actually will i mean has the potential to create new job opportunities from policy perspective we would like to still keep encourage you know the the emergence of the startups and we also pursue for the startups that I mean we 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 will pursue for the startup that really has the opportunity to create the jobs rather than just you know uh, uh, exchanging the or replacing the existing jobs and it's interesting here that uh, one of the examples that people in the region uh, tend to 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 mention often is uh, Uber uh, Uber is a some It tends to be very controversial in Europe or in the US for many different reasons but in a, in the Asia Pacific region Uber is perceived as a, as a as an innovation that gave thousands of people the chance to 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 get to get a, a job to 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 come out of informality in a way to get a job and also to get kind of decent uh, decent wages to get an insurance number to to anyway to formalize their their situation in the job market um And so th- there is definitely a different perception uh but at the same time I feel like Uber is also a company that invests is investing million in uh, in driverless cars so sooner or later this uh, this uh, they, they 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 will need probably less and less drivers if their testing on uh, driverless cars uh works out as as they expect it to work out so the robots are coming for all of us but whenever i hear conversations about the fourth industrial revolution the you know the coming of automation the death of traditional job markets i wonder is this conversation premature because this is obviously something that emotionally we're all a little frightened by i mean did you get a sense talking to people at the adb how quickly they think that this is coming well that's that's a very good point i think that uh, most of the people that are in policy making policy advice or like external observers they really don't get uh they don't really understand at the fullest uh, how quick uh, this is happening i think that when you speak to people uh in the private sector to manufacturers to people that are in electronics automotive uh, garments generally there you get a perception that things are happening really 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 quickly and uh, the push for this uh, for the, the incentive for this company is to keep going that direction 
and they, they will go they, they are all in for automation because obviously it's a global market and uh, competition is, is stiff so you know the more productive the more efficient you are the better you are and there are technology china is investing a billion every year in robotics and automation um, also AI don't forget AI for example a country like the Philippines a country like the Philippines where million 1.2 million of people if not more work in the in call centers um, and most of the most of these people they could uh, likely be replaced by artificial intelligence machines in the next few years and it's already happening actually when I was in Manila people were telling me that uh, call centers were emptying uh, office buildings and they were replaced by e-gaming Chinese uh, e-gambling e-gaming Chinese companies so I think that it's already happening happening and where I see a consensus also from those who have uh, optimistic views like the ADB is that there will be a transition um, let's see that the positive view is that okay there will be a transition we can retrain reskill workers to be ready to embrace uh, you know to, to to get new jobs in the new economy new sectors that will be out there once innovation uh, get full traction um, so this is definitely something there is definitely consensus or the fact that there will be there, there, there needs to be uh, policies education policies tailored for this new rising economy, uh, but also redistribution policies to support those that maybe haven't got access to technology, those who haven't got anyway the skills or the age to to adjust. Imagine like we are we are still we are still talking of a a, a region where, for example, power is still a major issue. Like I was I was I was recently um, um, writing about uh, Papua New Guinea, which is uh, the main economy in the Asia Pacific Islands, and eighty five percent, if not ninety percent of the people lack access to power. So all of them, ninety percent of the population is is not participating in this innovation uh, revolution because they just don't have access to power. So it's um, it's 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 a massive challenge. I think it's also worrying because, you know, I've I've spent uh, the past couple of years uh, reporting a lot from sub-Saharan Africa. And these are parts of the world that are kind of banking on the fact that actually a lot of light manufacturing is going as labor costs go up in Asia, in Vietnam, in places that the ADB is covering that are developing very quickly. Those jobs are going to need to go elsewhere. We're going to industrialize in places like Ghana and Ethiopia and South Africa, and we're going to set up those factories here. Now, if automation is coming as quickly as you say, they might miss out on that there might be a jump that sort of precludes that kind of industrialization policy. So I think that that's uh, concerning for policymakers there. Right. Well, actually, there is also a lot of talking about reshoring. I mean, some people argue that uh, automation uh, makes uh, can, can create a case for European or American company to reshore their manufacturing capacity within Europe or, or the US, which from this perspective, I feel that, again, I, I don't buy it you know, uh, like uh, I think that this won't completely happen uh, for the for the, for the simple reason that the Asia Pacific market by itself has become such a big market that any producer want to have a manufacturing capacity there because the consumers of the future and also consumers of the present are there. So probably they 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 might be in a condition to reshore some of the production 
bound for their local markets in Europe, the US or wherever, but definitely there will be still a huge manufacturing capacity installed in Southeast Asia. But the point that you make about Africa is definitely a very good one. It's, uh, will there be an economic case? Will there still be an economic case for manufacturers to move capacity to African countries for like labor cost advantages in the future? That's... We shall see. We shall see. But they are, you know, many economies in the African region are investing heavily in this. So if the fourth industrial revolution comes too quickly, it's going to it's going to throw a wrench in those plans. But Adrian, so t- tell us something more about um, about Jordan. If we let's let's uh, let's move on and let's talk. Jordan was uh, it's an interesting country with Jordan. Uh, the EBRD has been operating in Jordan now for a few years. Uh, and uh, I mean, it's, it sounds like a bit of a statement, strong statement to have an annual meeting there in Jordan. Uh, so, what's 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 your view on what's happening in Jordan and how the EBRD is uh, is sort of uh, supporting development uh, uh, in the country? Well, Jordan's interesting, and it's kind of it's interesting in a certain way that the EBRD is there because I mean, as much as they say this is part of their sort of southern eastern Mediterranean region, I mean. Jordan doesn't actually border on that. It's sort of, you know, to to the east of that. But, um, I mean, currently they have about a 780 million euro portfolio the uh, active in the country. Um, they're looking very heavily at renewable energy. They're also looking very heavily at water and re- water resilient projects. So Jordan is the second most water stressed country in the world. Um, that is is linked to climate change to a certain extent. It's also very much linked to the fact that Jordan has capacity or sort of water reserves that should be supporting a population of about 2 million people. There are currently 9.5 million people in Jordan surviving on very, very, very little water. Um, Population growth is part of that. A lot of that has to do with refugee flows, both out of Palestine. um, It it borders on Palestine and Israel. um, And those have been coming in since 1948, since the Israeli state was created. But it also has to do with wars in neighboring Iraq and Syria. And those, those conflicts have put incredible strain on Jordan's water resilience. They've also put a lot of strain on the economy in general. Um, The closure of the Syrian border with Jordan at the height of the conflict, it still remains closed today, you know, has really shut down trade to a certain extent. So, you know, Jordan is resilient, but it is struggling uh, to a certain extent. Um, And there are also questions as to, you know, how much space is actually being created for the private sector to come in and sort of really make investments um, and really be able to take initiative as opposed to sort of being blockaded, both by multilateral development banks, but also by their own policymakers. Um, I have a clip here, actually, uh, by Basim El Saleh, who's an investor um, from a uh, clean energy uh, and renewable. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? 
Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Technology company called Green Tech. So maybe we can listen to that now and see what he has to say. I would say we still need some work. We are on the right track. Um, on the, for example, on the renewable energy side, uh, the legislation and regulation is really advanced in Jordan. I would say, and I think there are statistics that per capita shows Jordan to be one of the first countries in the world uh, in solar installations. Um, so, so they are doing it on one way, on one side. Um, what needs to happen is, I think, more promotion of private sector-led initiatives, and, and not just by government. Uh, even DFIs, I was just talking on the panel, development organizations such as the ABRD should allow private sector-led initiatives to go without the, the obstacle of having to bid everything out. So if I come into the, to the ABRD with an idea that makes sense, financial sense to them, to us, and has the value of uh, civil society promotion and, and advancement, they should take it. I mean, they can vet it, they can uh, run due diligence on it, but they cannot just stop it, which is what they do today, because it's not through a bidding process. So as you can see there, uh, the private sector is interested in getting involved in sort of solving a lot of Jordan's problems, but there are still some obstacles to that. I think another really interesting thing actually that came out um, in my discussion with various Jordanian um, officials there is the fact that Jordan is now positioning itself to be able to basically capitalize on the reconstruction efforts that are going to have to happen in Iraq and Syria once the conflicts there end, to the extent that the Jordanian government is even setting up special economic zones specifically geared towards the companies and the investors that are going to need to come in to rebuild these two countries. Um, we also have a clip of my interview with uh, the minister. Maybe let's play that now and see what he, he has to say about that. Geographically, it is important for us to pay attention to the rebuilding uh, process. What's being uh, done to create the proper tool to take advantage of that? We're creating a developed, or we've created a development zone in, in Mafraq. We're created also a logistical uh, hub uh, uh, there. Mafraq is 15 kilometers away from Syria, 200 kilometers away from uh, uh, Iraq. We have uh, built a relation between the military and, and the free zone area and, and uh, company called Safeport to create also a proper runway into the development zone whereby you would create a logistical platform that has a proper infrastructure. Also, you want to give it uh, the capability of, of accessibility uh, through air. That area has a very good incentive program uh, such as uh, income, ta income tax is only 5%. Sales tax on goods and services is important for the uh, business. It's uh, zero and it has a list of of, of zeros. So obviously this is very interesting. Uh, the, the situation though in, uh, in Syria and parts of Iraq remains as complicated as ever. So did you feel you know, in your conversation also with like private sector people, did you feel that there is real interest for private sector, for private companies to, to participate in this? Well, actually to start moving uh, towards a possible rebuilding of uh, Syria and Iraq or still is too much of a risky play at the moment? I mean, I think it's it's still uh, it's still too unstable to start thinking about that now. Um, but you know, there's already a large um, 
let's say, community of investors who already did this the last time around. You know, this is the second time we're rebuilding Iraq um, since 2000. So I think that there will be interest in doing that in particular, um, you know, as investors are all too fond of saying, you know, where there is challenge, there is opportunity. you know, this special economic zone and this sort of push by the Jordanians is quite new, but I would imagine that there are many who will look to take advantage of that in the coming years and as the situation in both Syria and Iraq stabilizes. Okay, uh, let me finish with uh, another very last uh, topic that was discussed, even though not as much as I would have expected uh, there in Manila which is uh, cryptocurrencies and anyway the the the, the surge the emergence of uh, blockchain as this kind of disrupted technology uh, also if not uh, above all for finance um, i spoke there to uh, mamuka bakhtadze who is a finance minister for georgia because georgia interesting enough is emerging as a superpower for crypto mining there are certain estimates that says that uh, after China, we know we all know about like the the crypto mining farms in China. But after China, the country that is uh, mining the most bitcoins and uh, Ethereum and so on and so forth uh, has become uh, now uh, uh, Georgia. Um, this obviously we have to handle these statistics uh, carefully, but definitely is becoming like a hotspot for uh, for companies looking to to mine uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, and obviously, this creates big opportunities for the country. So this is investment for the country. Obviously, this creates challenges, power consumption, and so on and so forth. And this is what it told me uh, specifically about regulation of uh, cryptocurrencies. According to some studies, uh, Georgia is number two or three in the world in terms of uh, crypto mining. Uh, and uh, even uh, even in today's meeting, uh, this was one of the main topic and uh, this. Generally, the topic about cryptocurrencies is, uh, is uh, it has become very popular, uh, and uh, of course, I mean, our uh, position is that uh, uh, we that uh, uh, the industry of crypto mining uh, has been growing in the last couple of years. Ten days ago, we had the spring meetings in uh, in, in Washington. And there's the same spirit actually here in Manila during uh, ADB annual summit that uh, uh, there should be some kind of rules of game on international level. Okay, because we see that now more and more countries are trying to implement or craft their own national strategies about uh, cryptocurrencies, and we are closely monitoring that. But however. Uh, we think that there should be some rules of games, not only on national, but on international level, because this sector has become actually pretty large. That's a, that's a fact. And I think that the industry needs new rules of game. Okay, so new rules of game. Uh, somebody would argue that uh, rules of game, uh, they just go against the principle of uh, the blockchain itself, which is like this decentralized uh, ledger technology. Uh, but obviously, from a policymaking perspective, uh, definitely from their perspective, it would make sense to have uh, some sort of international consensus over uh, basic questions like, do we want cryptocurrencies? Do we allow cryptocurrencies? Uh, do we want to regulate them more or less? So 
this is definitely um, something that matters for countries that are experiencing this kind of development uh, within their borders. Okay, Adrian, well, thank you. Thank you very much for being with us today. Um, let me ask you a very last question. Looking forward, looking at next year's uh, EBRD meeting, uh, is there any specific theme or topic that uh, you would expect to, to become more prominent uh, next year or in the following year's meetings? I mean, I think that the big thing that everybody knows is going to happen next year now is that's when you're going to have sort of the outcome of uh, consultations with shareholders on the expansion of the EBRD. So they're going to conclude that for the 2019 meeting in Sarajevo and sort of make decisions about geographically where the bank is going next. Um, so that will be definitely happening then. And then what I would also expect is, you know, again, this was sort of a veiled theme that wasn't addressed head on. But, you know, migration into Europe is going to be an ongoing issue that the European Union and therefore the EBRD and associated um, institutions are going to be dealing with. Um, and I hope that there can be a more... Yeah, let's say transparent discussion of sort of how um, European policy on migration and also investment policy coming out of EBRD, EIB, and all of these different bodies is looking at these issues. Right. Uh, I think that with regards to, to the, the ADB, um, I think that the, the next year's location is again sort of symbolic of uh, something, an emerging thing that will become more prominent in the next few years. So next year the meeting will be in Fiji. And so I think that uh, they definitely want to increase their leverage, their, their operations in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the Pacific Islands. And uh, I would definitely expect the uh, themes uh, like uh, cryptocurrencies, but also cybersecurity is applied to finance and development finance to become uh, more, uh, more uh, to, to get like the center stage of the annual summit. Also, everybody just wants a tan. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> well, Jen, thanks again for being with us. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We can, you can follow all our podcasts on fdiintelligence.com slash podcast or on ACAST and iTunes. Until the next time.